Hey folks, James here. Just a quick little editor's note before we get started today. This podcast was recorded over the course of, I think, three different sessions and three different internet connections. It was... It was a shit show, basically, um, and so there's some weird dips in the audio sometimes. I apologize for that. I've done the best that I can to clean it up, and we really appreciate you sticking with us through that. Uh, second point is that from this point on, for season two, we wanted to try something a little bit different with two hearts, and we'll be moving to a fortnightly schedule. So uh, we'll have a new episode coming out still on Fridays, uh, just every second Friday from this point on. Basically, it just gives uh, both CJ and I a little bit more time to not have this podcast to take up a huge amount of our week. Um, so yeah, we're, we're excited about that. Hopefully we can bring you a little bit more in-depth analysis as well, because it gives us, you know, just that extra bit of time to figure out what we are going to say to you lovely people. Um, and other than that, I have one small note from this episode as well. Uh, at some point, CJ tries to talk about the horror film the strangers but instead calls it the others multiple times and he was so embarrassed by it that he made me include it in this little editor's note so um that is about it i will leave you to your regular listing now Two Hearts, a new who podcast. I am C.A.J. And I'm James, and this is the only podcast where we couldn't decide on a quote from either of the episodes that we're reviewing this week, so instead we just landed on this awkward no man's land. Normally here on Two Hearts, we would take a look at another episode from the 2005 Doctor Who revival, but this week we are doing something a little bit special, a little bit different. Uh, In between seasons, we wanted to take a look at some classic Who stories that are important to both CJ or I, and so this week we are looking at Pyramids of Mars and Doctor Who and the Silurians. But before we get into that, just briefly, how have you been? Um, I've been better. (laughs) honestly uh i moved house recently and i it means everything is like currently in boxes and i'm living out of uh boxes (laughs) um but things are okay i'm recording this uh with my laptop on my air dryer um my clothes dryer and sitting at my old chair wishing i was somewhere else (laughs) how are you james um also wishing that I was somewhere else, but maybe for different reasons, but that's life. That's life. Uh, Australia is, um, it's odd because the majority of Australia seems to have done a, a pretty good job in getting over the hurdle of this coronavirus thing. We're getting a sense of normalcy back, but then, um, our, our dear sister state Victoria seems to be experiencing a second wave at the moment, which is, um, obviously not ideal. If, if we do have any listeners in Victoria, uh, our hearts go out to you, please stay safe, stay inside where I'm mask you know do what you gotta do um yeah it's it's just it's still just a really strange time and you know we took that little gap there after we finished season one and we really appreciate that you folks hopefully stuck around for that little gap um so yeah welcome back to two hearts i suppose (laughs) welcome back um we're really excited to be back and to also be talking about these classic episodes because it's obviously stepping outside of our norm to be recording and talking about um, Classic Who, um, but we are super excited. But do we have any Doctor Who news before we start, James? 
We do. We have just a, a little story here from the official Doctor Who YouTube channel um, on the topic of classic Who episodes, actually. They have started to uh, essentially upload condensed edited versions of uh, classic Who stories down into like sort of digestible little 30 minute chunks. Um, and so, you know, the, the, the first one they've done is The Hand of Fear from 1976, which was Sarah Jane Smith's last adventure, Sarah Jane, who we'll be talking about later today. So this is like a really just a cool little way that uh, they can maybe reintroduce some of these more, um, you know, the, the barrier to these stories can sometimes be a little bit high. I mean, Doctor Who and the Solar Runes is a really good example being, you know, seven parts long. Maybe people don't want to invest that much time in something that uh, is a little bit older. So this is a, a cool way to give those new audiences just something to chew on. Yes, absolutely. Um, it's always good to let some new viewers view classic who eps. Um, and I, it feels wrong to me <laughs> to do that to a classic who story, but um, it's, it's good that it's out there at least. And the, the, that the channel is acknowledging who classic who i guess we're at a time in the history of the show when there isn't anything being produced and the world's at a bit of a standstill where they can't afford to take a look back um sorry there's like an ambulance going past my bedroom if you can hear it <laughs> we can <laughs> it's going away it's going away emergency averted everyone uh yes yeah uh, absolutely um it is you're right it's a bit of a standstill at the moment we don't have much content coming out and so yeah diving back into the history of the show maybe isn't such a bad idea for the channel um i know that uh speaking of classic who in our first episode we already kind of did a little bit of our history with the show uh but just before we dive into these two classic episodes i think it's it's worth uh, sort of revisiting how both of us have a relationship to the classic era of the show um so how did you i guess first like stumble upon it well i think when we did our very first episode we talked about our history with who respectively um and i noted in that one that i really only came to doctor who with chris reckleston and that very first season that we've just reviewed so classic who for me before i got into it was just this funny little thing that was you know played repeats on abc and wasn't very good <laughs> um and so my conception of it, my perception of it wasn't great. Um, but I think it's different for you, isn't it, James? It is. Um, and it's interesting. I was watching, I don't know, one of those like newfangled kids on the YouTubes uh, reviewing New Who recently. And I was reading the comments section and a whole bunch of them were essentially saying like, um, oh, you know, Christopher Eccleston was my doctor when I was seven years old or, or whatever it was. And so you've got this kind of like generation of kids who they came up with that specifically as their childhood doctor, um, which again goes to the point of what the YouTube channel is doing, maybe trying to introduce them to these different kinds of stories. Um, whereas for me, when I was seven years old, you know, sitting in my grandparents' house watching Pyramids of Mars on VHS, Tom Baker was my doctor he was my like big influential sort of way into the show um and so it is like partly a generational thing obviously and um i think that if you grew up with them you're maybe a little bit more forgiving of some of the weaker elements of, of these classic um serials but you know they, they do remain very fascinating stories um i think the two we're talking about today are a really good example of both strengths of, of the classic era. So I think without further ado, we should probably dive right into them. Um, let's start with Doctor Who and the Silurians. 
which I can't not say like Moira Rose, apparently. <laughs> so, Doctor Who and the Silurians was first broader cast on the 31st of January, 1970, uh, running for seven episodes until the 14th of March, 1970. Seven episodes, if you can believe it. This is a fucking long one. It was directed by Timothy Coombe and written by Malcolm Hulk. And stars Mr. John Pertwee as the third Doctor, alongside Caroline John as Liz Shaw and Nicholas Courtney as the erstwhile Brigadier Lethbridge Stewart. This story begins with the Doctor being called out to a nuclear power station located in some caves in Wenley Moor, uh, where he discovers there's been some power losses and some of the staff have been regressing to a primitive state and drawing cave images on the walls. He quickly deduces that there is a subspecies, uh, not, well, not a subspecies, but a, a species of alien reptiles living underneath the earth in the caves that were here on planet earth before humans and have equal claim to the planet i'm already setting up some moral quandaries for you all the doctor tries to reason peace with the silurians but after one of them kills uh, a scientist at the research center relations break down between the two groups and the silurians release a virus into human into human society which um threatens to turn into a pandemic the doctor quickly fixes the problem as he's wont to do and stops the silurians who retreat peacefully however the brigadier in a last act defeats them well not defeats them he blows up their base basically committing genocide it's a an unusually downbeat and morally dubious ending for doctor who um which had normally followed the very tried and true formula of the Doctor coming in, battling the monsters and saving the day. This definitely signalled a new and more complex uh, era of storytelling for the show. But what do you think, James? Well, Doctor Who and the Silurians is an interesting one. Um, it's one of those rare and unfortunate examples for me of a story in Who that I I almost prefer in theory than in practice. Um, like when we were talking about how we were going to discuss this episode, I said that if this was a book, I think I would absolutely fucking love it um, because there is so much depth and nuance and interesting things going on in the characterization and, and the story beats that they hit on. But for me, there are a couple of, not just like, like I said in our intro there that, um, you know, if you grew up with New Who, you might be a little bit more forgiving of its uh, shortcomings in the technical terms. Um, and so I don't really mind so much the the kind of the rubber suits and the, the shoddy sort of camera quality. I, I can forgive that. Um, but I do think that it is unnecessarily long um, for a, a TV series of this caliber because it doesn't have the production value or the gravitas to really carry this much story. And so... I did find myself being a little bit, I, I don't want to say bored, but I, I wasn't as engaged by this as I thought I would be given the premise, because, you know, like you said, like it's such a, a dope premise for a story and it, it, and having it set on earth and, you know, the battle between science and military and, and the doctor and it, it should all really work. And it does work when I think about it. It just doesn't work so much for me when I watch it. But I know that um, mm. you maybe feel a little bit differently. Yes, I hear exactly what you're saying. And it's a common criticism of the show that obviously the production values aren't great. The storytelling was paramount always um, because the effects, they couldn't live up to what was they were trying to depict 
on screen. I feel differently to you in that I think the strength of the writing allows me to paper over some of the technical um, issues with the production of, the sh of this story. Um, I find it utterly compelling, especially uh, as a big, big fan of like 1970s British horror and thrillers that they did on television, um, like the Stone Tapes, lots of Nigel Neal, Quatermass stuff, um, as well as like um, Edge of Darkness, which is another, I think that was the 80s, but I can't remember, like government spy kind of BBC thriller. It feels very prevalent to me as a viewer. Uh, and so I really do, I really do vibe with this story, but I, I was sad to hear that you didn't like it. Didn't like is, is definitely maybe too strong a, a wording uh, because like I said, I, I do really vibe with it in, in theory. Like I, I was in a way excited to talk about it here because um, the ideas that it's trading in and the concepts are, are really up my alley in, in a certain way like this isn't obviously the exact version of who that i want pyramids of mars is, is closer to that um but i i do appreciate that they try to tackle something as um maybe as deep as you know colonialism um rights right of land and whatnot all that sort of stuff is a very interesting jumping off point and it's interesting that you say that for you, it's the quality of the writing that pulls you through some of the lesser production values. And not not to be the contrarian that I am often on this show, uh, but I, I do find that for me, it is equal parts the writing that lets it down in some cases. I think um, in retrospect, like when I was watching them, I thought those first couple of episodes were uh, very slow and sort of not much was happening and I wasn't particularly engaged. And then you get to the um, the releasing of the virus into London and suddenly you've got, you know, five minute stretches of time where essentially you're just watching John Pertwee swirl liquids around in a vat being like, hmm, yes, I'm going to solve this. And it does feel like padding to me. And I think that the, the writer or the director, somebody involved in the production did say in an interview at one point that the London stuff was essentially added to uh, like not pad out the story necessarily, but just to maybe give it a little bit more length and maybe a little bit more of a traditional sort of dramatic arc at the end there. Um, because otherwise, if you, if you remove that, I do think you've got a tighter story, but you've also got something that is much more quiet and subdued. Yeah, which, which I'm obviously into in a pretty big way because i think that a story like doctor who and the silurians um which i might just start calling the silurians from this point on <laughs> um is is maybe a little bit more is maybe a little bit more suited to uh small scale you know keep it in the caves keep it in the like on the like you know the the foggy moors of, of outer london or wherever they are um because I, I think the story does uh, stumble quite a bit towards the end there because it does I mean it's seven parts it just it keeps going and so I lose a lot of momentum with it despite the fact that it starts and and ends in such a strong way I think the seventh episode for me is the worst one only because of the last minute reveal of uh the the plot that they're going to destroy the Van Allen belt which is something that had never been discussed up to that point um I found really that's probably the only like egregiously bad bit of writing but i think overall it's very very tightly plotted actually um from the very beginning of setting up the story it that first episode does a lot of work to set up the characters the setting the situation they've all found themselves in the mystery as well um the second episode um goes into 
the escape Silurian and building up that threat of the creature that's coming towards them, the creature that lives under the caves, what the mystery could be. And and I think it's also worth noting that it we are obviously thinking about these episodes from uh, a very enlightened perspective where we've already watched them and we know what the reveal is. And you knew that what the the concept of the Silurians was before, you know, you even watched the episode. But I think that one of the great strengths about this episode is sorry the story is really the reveal that the aliens the silurians haven't come from space they haven't secreted themselves underground as a as a means to infiltrate human society they literally were there they were born there they are from this planet and they have equal rights and claims to this planet i find that moment of reveal i think it's in episode four where they like actually reveal that the Silurians have always been here and they haven't just invaded. Uh, fascinating. Really good story fodder. Do you think that maybe it undermines the potential um, sort of the, the potential potential of, of a reveal like that in the sense that um, you know you do get this revelation of they've been here the whole time. The earth is technically theirs like it is rightfully theirs i would say um and so how do you feel about the fact that the episode essentially dissolves them into as evil as they are by the end because we get the the doctor forms a relationship with a scientist silurian who is you know the quote-unquote more enlightened one who does see a way for humans and silurians to exist um and cohabitate and whatnot he is killed by a younger aggressive more military-minded solarian which really Mm. great story beat but then after that we don't get much more of a nuance to look at the solarians it's just moving from cartoonish evil plot to cartoonish evil plot and i do think that you lose something in the potential commentary there in saying that people who have or rather a people or a race that has a a genuine claim to land will devolve into the the savages essentially i think is um i'm i can't speak to if it's intentional or not and i'm definitely not trying to do that at all um i just i i wonder how you feel about that um uh, yeah i want to push back on that idea that they're savage because they're not savage they are righteously angry at what's happening to their planet um at the end there but i get to your point that you what i think what you mean is that they uh just become marauding monsters again in the conclusion of the story which is true which is fair um and there probably is definitely room to have had more of a a discussion uh, as it were amongst the silurians and i know that you don't like me it when i do this term in this particular line of thinking in terms of criticism but like this is 1970 and Doctor Who had been running since 1963, and for the entirety of the 60s, monsters were monsters, and they performed one function. And this was literally the first time that the show even acknowledged that monsters or aliens had personalities, had were individual identities, uh, and weren't a homogenous, like, one look, one thinking group or race of creatures. And so... I am incredibly forgiving of the where it lacks from a modern sensibility because it was so groundbreaking as a story um, in story terms 
when it was initially written and even conceived. Yeah, I, I think that's a, a very fair point. And I know that like when we talk about like Rose, for example, we do try to say like, you know, we can't excuse this because it's a product of its time. Like 2005 is not the dark ages, you know. Um, that argument gets much more slippery when we're talking about something from the 70s like this. And to your point, this is an interesting attempt at moving the show forward in in giving a quote-unquote alien um you know individuality and a sense of identity and a sense of uh, just just being different from one another and it stops them from being just that collective monster force um and it, it's to that point though i i think that's where my main criticism comes from with that ending is that like it does kind of revert them back to just being the monster of the week um and while the actual ending of the brigadier blowing them up um, after they'd retreated and were back into cryosleep is definitely where the nuance sort of comes back in. That is in the last, like, you know, two minutes. Um, and that last episode is mostly about them, you know, concocting evil plans to wipe out the humans and whatnot, which, you know, again, it's the 1970s. It's a very natural conclusion for them to draw for a story about, you know, Doctor Who versus... Uh, an alien race um it's just unfortunate that through a modern lens you can't help but think about the way that you know presenting a story about colonization and rights to land uh devolving into that kind of ending for the rightful owners of the land is just a it's just not a very it's not a particularly nuanced or or good take Uh, yes and that ending definitely brings it back to the nuanced discussion that was it was attempting through the story um i do really like that conclusion to the story because of how uncertain a place it leaves the story it like it leaves the world of doctor who doctor who doesn't it initially did like kind of cliffhanger endings to stories that would lead into the next one and that's not actually what's happening here but it does at least um leave us at a point where the state of the world isn't the same as when we started it And one of the interesting things about this era of the show is that the Doctor was, like, openly um, aligned with the military for the first time. Now, (laughs) with a Doctor like John Pertwee, that's all fine and dandy because he very much acts the diplomat and the government figure. Um, But it's interesting that, like, this is only his second story and that image of him as an establishment figure, as somebody of business or government fails because he fails because he can't broker peace or negotiate it. Um, he fails as a diplomat and also fails as a doctor. Um, and it's a really interesting setup to this doctor's, uh, era on the show, not only to have them fail, but to have them, you know, revert and regress to aligning themselves with the military might of uh, that's represented by the brigadier and unit um i wondered what your thoughts were on that uh yeah no, that's a really good point and while i'm disappointed in the uh sort of ultimate representation of the silurians i think the episode or the the story as a whole and especially as it dovetails into the next story in his era is very much a indictment of um the military government powers uh, especially sort of western um power um because the next story is um oh, what is it a- agents of death or um ambassadors of death 
Yeah, Ambassadors of Death, that's it. Um, which is, I mean, I can't remember the exact details, but it was, you know, something along the lines of, you know, you do have uh, intergovernment conflict and it's it's a lot of, like, um, soldiers shooting soldiers and it's all very ostensibly macho, but it's got this undercurrent running through it because you've got the Doctor and um, the companion of this era are both quite um, insightful and cutting through the bullshit that they're presented with, with Unit and the Brigadier. Um, these two stories next to each other, I think, do provide a, a really good criticism of... Um, the power that they wield essentially and ultimately like you said like at the end of the day with this with doctor who and the silurians yes the silurians do devolve into some uh, caricature type evil but the humans are consistently keeping pace with them in terms of um, either screwing up from idiocy or ignorance or deliberate malice and to end the story with a beat that essentially says the brigadier that you consider to be comfort and the representation of the human race in this show just okayed a very deliberate and violent genocide um, is a hell of a thing to leave the audience hanging with in the 1970s. And I think that challenging the assumptions of um, faith in the state at that time in uh, in history, it, it definitely should be um, applauded. It's something that even you who struggles with um, a, a fair bit, actually. Like, I don't think that, um, you know, while certain parts of the story have definitely aged, there are other parts that really do hold up quite well. And I would like to see you who learn from the way that this treats uh, the military and the doctor's relationship to it. Um, you're absolutely right. And that kind of political sensibility absolutely comes from the author of this story, Malcolm Hulk, who was pretty much a communist, I want to say. Um, they definitely had left-leaning politics, um, which are reflected in their writing in Doctor Who. Um, in other stories that they wrote for the show, they tackled environmentalism, um, anti-authoritarianism, um, humanist kind of themes, and like it really, really, really shows because his it's 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 actually interesting because his this particular story was um, the very first one that was conceived for this new era of Doctor Who when they were going to be grounded on Earth, the Doctor was going to be exiled to Earth and stuck without his TARDIS, and he Malcolm Hulk said, you know, that by doing so, you've limited your stories to alien invasion or mad scientists and evil computer. And so he was like, what if the aliens were already here? And that already bucked the trend of the kind of story they were going to be able to tell with this particular era. Um, so he's a really, really canny writer. Yeah. Um, I, yeah, I, mean, I, I just agree. Like I know that I am a little bit down on the production side of this um, story, obviously, but uh the actual story itself is really good. And I could definitely see how it came from the mind of someone who was progressive for the seventies. There are a lot of themes and um, character arcs going on in here that would be born from that kind of mind. Uh, I know that, like I said to you before we started recording that um, like I, I would have preferred this as a book mm -hmm. and the writer also did write this as a novel. Um, yes, you're right. It, it was a pretty common practice in, Doctor Who to novelize the stories because they weren't, you know, you couldn't rewatch them once they've been broadcast. Um, and so Doctor Who, uh, Malcolm Holt did a novelization of his own story here. Um, and 
it's interesting because it gives a lot more detail and, and inner dialogue to some of the side characters that isn't prevalent on the show. I think it gives the Silurians names, for instance. Um, there's more Silurians and they have actual personalities, um, as in fleshed out from their roles, basically, as leader, young leader, scientist. They actually get names and, and thoughts and feelings. Um, and the same for the humans as well. Some of the side characters uh, get a lot more detail, especially Miss Dawson, who was aligned with Quinn in those first few episodes. Um, and the other interesting thing about that novelization is that there's a little prologue which depicts the last days of Silurian society. So it is like it does lend itself very this particular story to um, literary um, writing uh, because it is so high concept. And you're you're I think you are right in saying that this would have worked better as a as a novel or a story written down, but I I can't help but just appreciate the charm of the 1970s who I love the solar and design. I love the cave setting. Um, I love how crappy some of the chroma key looks. Um, yeah, it's just good. Yeah, that's entirely fair. I mean, there's a lot of stuff in here that I do really vibe with. Um, the I think it's episode maybe two. I'm, I'm not entirely sure. They all bled together for me, in all honesty. Um, but there was the moment when the Silurian escapes out of the tunnels and into, like, you know, the dewy moors of a London morning kind of thing. And you get that, like really pulled back shot of just like a silhouetted figure kind of stumbling through the grass. It's obviously very lost and confused, but also a little bit scary and dangerous. And it ends up at a, uh, a little farmhouse where um, this farmer finds it hiding in the hay. Um, and, you know, he calls out to his wife, like, Oh, there's a thing hiding in the farm. And it's all very, you know, like on one hand, you've got a really fantastic kind of like cool little contained alien story where the farmer ends up dying from a heart attack because he's so scared of the thing, which is super silly, but a lot of fun. And on the other hand, you've also got this concept of a, um, you know, somebody of who looks different or who is different from you coming into your land and your culture and, you know, the first response from the the white people that occupy the land is to meet it with with a pitchfork you know um it's i wouldn't say it's particularly deep but i do think that as we've said before about doctor who sometimes being you know baby's first introduction to bigger concepts i think it works quite well and the silurians themselves are genuinely charming they're very they're like the perfect combination of naively cute and menacing <laughs> yeah you're right they are um they are quite cute, aren't they? I just want to go back briefly to the barn scene um, because there are a couple of points I want to just raise about it. One, the the, the farmer getting the heart, having a heart attack, um, coupled with the stuff in the story about the people regressing to like a primitive stage, um, is something that is very kind of underbaked in this story, and I can't necessarily excuse, but I know that it was conceived of as um, because one of the ways of thinking about this story, one of the inspirations for this story is a serial called Quatermass in the pit, which features uh, it's like a, one of the Quatermass serials that has um, aliens coming to earth, but then it's discovered that the aliens have always been there and that 
uh, some humans are regressing to a, like a primitive stage because they're getting race memories of these aliens. And it's the same thing that's happening in this particular story. Um, so when he has the heart attack or when, you know, the scientists start scrawling on the walls, it's supposed to be like that. They, ha they have this race memory of the Silurians lording over them in the, you know, near distant past. Um, it doesn't make sense, but it's, that's why it's there. Um, the other point that I only noticed on second rewatch of this story is how clever points of the direction is. Um, and the one that I remember is the start of episode three, because up to that point, the Silurians had been depicted as just monsters, you know, they were just marauding aliens coming through um, and trying to take over the planet um, and mindless in a way. And you see that mindlessness um, in episode two with the Silurian that's hunting on the moors and then, you know, hides in the barn and attacks Liz at the end of episode two. And then I noticed in episode three, one of the things it starts with is that in the POV shot of the Silurian, after it steps back from Liz it hears the farmer and you see it go up to the door and like manipulate the door handle and close it. And that's the first inkling you get that they are intelligent, that they aren't just like creatures of pure instinct. Um, and that's all through direction. You know, that's not the story beat telling you that that's happening in front of you. Um, so yeah, I just really appreciate it. Yeah. Uh, I, I agree. And um, to that point, there's that other scene where the, I don't remember if he's a, a scientist or a military guy or whatever. He's one of the dudes in the story. Um, and he is harboring one of the Solarians in his house um, or harboring or kidnapped. I don't know. I was a bit you know, shaky on the details there. Um, but what I liked about that scene is that it, like the farm scene, it lent it this odd kind of like, uh, just very suspenseful otherworldliness in the sense that you take something as normal as a farm or a, a regular countryside house and you have like, you know, hiding in the shadowy corner, like you, you vaguely see the figure of something core, you know, as the doctor notes, like, um, oh, your house is running really hot, like reptiles like the warm, that, that kind of stuff. Like, I mean, it's all very hokey. But at the same time, and this is something that comes up in Pyramids of Mars, actually, uh, when you take a very normal setting like that and you add just that little flair of, of mystery and weirdness, you get that perfect magic that Doctor Who sometimes taps into in its older iterations because everything does look so cheap and so real. When you combine that with a, like, you know, spooky direction and spooky soundtracks and stuff like that, you do get, like, a like a genuine little, like, twang of, like, fear and it it just works really effectively at times in this episode there are other times obviously when you know the doctor's fighting a giant rubber dinosaur or whatever and we don't love that as much or well, i don't um and yeah basically dr who and the silurians is a a very mixed bag for me uh but when it does get it right i think it absolutely nails it yes absolutely and that's what's happening here i think is it's getting the ideas right, it's getting most of the direction right, and um, even though it is a bit long, and it doesn't really stack up to um, modern viewers as a you know example of good television, I think it has that quality that you really want from Doctor Who, which is just thought, you know, and some care has been taken to really establish a world and a, and a concept um, here. 
it's really good sci-fi writing, you know, um, and that is why I chose it. But I think we, I think that's our discussion on the Silurians. Yeah. Um, the only other sort of quick fire thought I have is that the soundtrack is a very interesting oh. one um, because I know that the uh, the guy who created the soundtrack um, specifically wanted to draw upon sort of more like older sounding instruments like woods or, or chimes and stuff like that as a way of reflecting the sort of ancient nature of the Silurians. And sometimes, much like the entire series, sometimes that works really well. Other times it just completely undercuts the tension and um, really amps up the, the cutesy factor of the Silurians for me, which is obviously very unintentional, but um, something that I found amusing. Uh, and I think that's really my only last note on this collection of episodes. That's a good point to end on. Uh, the music sucks. <laughs> that's all I can say. All right, and with that, we are going to transition out of Doctor Who and the Silurians into Doctor Who and the Pyramids of Mars. Pyramids of Mars first broadcast on the 25th of October 1975. It was directed by Paddy Russell and written by Robert Holmes under the pseudonym of Stephen Harris. The original story is credited to Louis Greifer, possibly Griffer, who knows? Um, it is notably shorter than Doctor Who and the Silurians, clocking in at just four episodes. Uh, so it's, you know, just around the two hour mark, which I personally think definitely adds to its uh, very snappy nature. And I think why it still resonates so well as what it is today. And I'm going to do my best now to just uh, give you a quick rundown of the general plot of Pyramids of Mars. Essentially, we've got uh, Tom Baker's Doctor and Sarah Jane Smith are just having a casual day traveling through space when they are thrown off course by a mental projection of the ancient evil god Sutek. Um, they land in, what is it, 19-something or other? 1911. 1911. 1911 England at the building that would go on to be burned down and built up again to be the HQ of unit of all things. Um, and while they, when they land there, they essentially discover that the Skarman brothers, Lawrence and Marcus, are embroiled in a plot uh, led by Sutek to essentially break free of his uh, bonds um, so that he may wreak havoc upon the Earth. Uh, that is the broadest terms possible uh, encapsulation of Pyramids of Mars. So before we get any further into it, CJ, what did you think? Um, yeah, look, thank you. And we've spoken about this, about our both of our feelings about Pyramids of Mars, and I'm obviously high on it because it is a bona fide classic. Um, but I think it's, it's safe to say that you are probably much more of a fan than I am. And... The my only reservations, I guess, about this story is just that it feels remarkably um, slight. But then at the same time, I have to remind myself that this is a particular era of the show that wasn't going for any kind of deep uh, philosophical thinkings about how <laughs> the universe works, or it wasn't even trying to do particularly hard or um, you know, innovative sci-fi concepts. It was just telling remarkably well done stories, um, incredibly entertaining stories. And on that front, this one like knocks it out of the park. 
Um, and as you said, like it is four episodes, it's a zippy four episodes. It's almost like a little mini movie in a lot of ways, which is very appropriate considering this era of Doctor Who was in some ways emulating those like classic horror and sci-fi films of like the 30s and 40s and 50s. Um, so yeah, it's really, really good. It's also interesting as well, the um, the setting, just briefly, um, you mentioned 1911 Egypt um, uh, and England, this stories being said in it's interesting because like egyptology as a concept didn't really like take off until really the um the 30s with um the uncovering of tutankhamun's tomb and then egyptology was also a big kind of thing in the like late 1800s because of um theosophy and the uncovering of spiritual mystic leanings from the east and africa um so it's interesting that this story is set in a period which is remarkably slight on, on the Egypt front. Um, I don't know what the intention was behind that, but I found that really interesting. I should also label at this point that I am a huge, 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 huge spiritualist and, and Egyptologist, like Egyptologist, Egyptology fan. Um, so that's why I just went into that incredibly nerdy point that nobody cares about. <laughs> yeah, um, I would say that I too am quite into the whole um, spirituality of um, ancient Egypt and whatnot, but in a much more uh, aesthetic vibe check way than in any actual intellectual sense. Um, because I think that Pyramids of Mars, too, to your point about how high I am on this one, um, I, I'm pretty sure Pyramids of Mars was my first ever Doctor Who story. Um, and so that it has gone on to inform so much of both what I want from the show and what I want from sort of like, you know, science fantasy writing, which we'll get to in a little bit with the Sutek ancient god stuff. Um, but the Egyptian stuff I do find really interesting because as a kid, it obviously kicked off something in my brain about like, you know, Egypt, it's, it's cool, bro. Like I, I just really, I really liked it. Um, and then coming back to this story as, as an adult in, in 2020, um, it does put a, uh, a different lens on things in the same way that with Doctor Who and the Silurians, we sort of discussed about how having um, themes of colonization and rights to land maybe read, or not maybe, but do read much differently now. Um, in something like Pyramids of Mars, you've also got flashes of this kind of um, othering, this uh, sort of painting of a foreign culture as a spooky mystical thing from the outset, as opposed to humanizing it. Um, and they've got the character, is it Naaman? Uh, yes. Yeah, so Naaman um, essentially is occupying the house when the Doctor and Sarah first land there. Uh, he only lasts for one episode. You think he's sort of being built up as the the henchman or the villain, and then he's just disposed of straight away. Um, and he isn't... I don't think he's particularly insensitively uh, portrayed as an Egyptian. It doesn't feel overly um, cliched or, or caricatured, other than the, the Fez, maybe. But that, you know, is what it is. Yeah. Yeah. Um, um, on a on a purely technical yeah. point, um, an Egyptian wouldn't wear a fez; they'd wear like um, like a turban kind of thing. Um, the fez is like is um, is more associated with like the Ottoman Empire um, and Turkey. So mm. I did, that's like another stupid little piece of trivia. There you go. <laughs> no, but like it's it's good trivia to have when you're discussing sort of the way that a older story like this, which is from the seventies does struggle to depict other races in a sensitive way. Well, it's, um, it, I wouldn't even say struggle necessarily, but because this, fi this film, because this story is drawing on 
like explicitly drawing on um, mummy films and like Hammer films and Universal monster movies. Like at the same time, it's pulling out the same stereotypes and preconceptions about those cultures, not insensitively, just unintentionally, because that was like the shorthand for how to depict an Egyptian person in that period. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I do think that um, it, it's it's strange because, like, we often talk about the in terms of representation. Even what you do unintentionally can be quite insensitive. You mm. know, there there is a um, there's a very delicate line that that even people now are struggling to walk in terms of the way that they represent other cultures in their in their media and whatever it is. And so to look at something from the 1970s, which you know gets some stuff fine, and other stuff is a little bit like. Oh, it's a little, you know, mysteries of the Orient kind of flavor to things. Yeah. Let's avoid talking about talents of Wang Chiang in the future. Well, yes. Oh, oh, talents of Wang Chiang. We should, we, we might cover that one day, folks. I'm not sure, but that is a, that's a minefield on its own. Um, and look, we don't want to get too bogged down into this, obviously, because we are just at the end of the day, two white dudes who just want to talk about Doctor Who. Uh, but it does, it is worth noting that if you're going to go back to these classic episodes like we have done this week, and especially with these two, you are going to see some things differently that, than you did maybe when you first saw them or when they were written. Um, and it's just worth noting. Absolutely. And I think, yeah, definitely worth considering, um, especially because, like, as I said before, like these, these uh, stories like the source material they're drawing from is probably much more explicitly ignorant or even racist um, when it comes to depicting other cultures. And um, one of the things I've been talking to you about is um, kind of like how the West perceives, obviously how the West perceives the East and and non-Western countries is problematic at best. Um, But one of the interesting things about the way in which the West has traditionally depicted Egypt is as kind of like its own separate state or country separate from Africa so that the engineering um, capabilities and feats of the ancient Egyptian people can be um, kind of removed from like the African nation. And like that kind of narrative is something that's been built up for years and years and years and then gets reflected in, you know, mummy movies of the thirties and forties, like I said. And so in a lot of ways, like the, those like racist attitudes just get unintentionally like filtered through down through the years until they start like being repeated in media um (laughs) no like it's it's a good observation to have and i do think that especially as a uh, generations have certainly grown up on um understandings of other cultures through our pop culture it does completely warp the lens that we put on them um and even like to to speaking to my own experience like the idea for me that i looked at egyptian culture as this particularly kind of like ooh, you know spiritual amazing thing possibly aliens involved is specifically because of stories like pyramids of mars when in reality like it is just another culture with its own rich history that i didn't specifically learn how to humanize Mm. um instead i I just viewed it through the lens of the media i consumed when i was a child um and it's one of those things it's good to grow out of those things it's good to reflect on them now um but at the same time i will say mummies that are robots is pretty cool (laughs) you're absolutely right and um i yeah i remember reading this like really interesting article that was like uh, it went into the um the plot uh, problems with this episode um which we can talk about later and one of the things they noted was if the Asirans have created robots why did they dress them up as mummies and it's that kind of thing where like 
the story is a, a slave to the aesthetic before thinking about it in story terms, but it also doesn't matter. Yeah, and I do think that's kind of the crux of what's going on with Pyramids of Mars is that like there are sort of quote-unquote the objective criticisms that you could level at some of the writing, but because the aesthetics and the vibe of the story and just the um, genuine sort of emotional propulsion behind it, you know, whether it's Sarah Jane struggling with the Doctor's immortality, the Doctor struggling with his battle against a god, the two brothers struggling with their sort of split over this uh, ancient evil and whatnot whatever it is, it's all just propelled forward with this incredible sense of like urgency and and mystery and fun that you never really stop to think about any of the more like sort of critical elements that you could let uh, level at it. And I think for some stories, that is a genuine point in its favor. And Pyramids of Mars is, is one of those stories. I think it's considered a classic because it makes you feel like you've just experienced an incredible Doctor Who story. And that's maybe all that matters when it comes to this kind of story. Yeah, I'd agree with that, for sure. That's good. Good good rebuttal from CJ there. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, um, yeah. So let's um we should um we should talk about the episode. We should talk about the episode itself. One of the one of the key things I think that makes this story such a success is the classic, the absolutely like almost like template for modern who relationships in the fourth doctor and Sarah. Because they're just fantastic in this story. They, they truly are. And it's something that like, I I got like 10 minutes into rewatching this and I sent you that message been like is this is just a new who blueprint mm. essentially like the way that it's like I said because of that snappy writing and direction um you do within that first 10 minutes you get everything from banter in the TARDIS mystery is established they land in a, a cool location uh they get a little bit of more banter the doctor has that throwaway line when he's using the lock pick and he's like you know this belonged to Catherine the Great or whoever it was like it just felt profoundly modern in a lot of ways you can see where um especially looking at what chibnall's doing with the show in terms of maybe you know going back to that who blueprint a fair bit um it's interesting to see it here in the 70s in such a clear way and i do think that speaks to tom baker's timeless nature as the doctor uh, this is the first time we're obviously talking about tom baker critically and one of his episodes um and i think anything that we say has been <laughs> repeated ad nauseum um because like what what more can you say about Tom Baker? I mean, he is just he is the doctor. Like he is the doctor. <laughs> he is. He truly is. And I, I do think it's worth noting that like the very first scene of this episode is um like it, it be- oh no, sorry, rather not the very first scene, because we get like the the prologue mm-hmm. that begins in Egypt, uh, with Marcus, I believe. Marcus Scarman, yes. Um, yes, with Marcus Scarman uh travels to Egypt as part of a expedition team discovers the the tomb of Sutek, uh, cracks the thing open and walks inside and is promptly sort of bathed in green light and he screams and then it's cut to the TARDIS floating through space, right? And so immediately you're like, oh, okay, this is this is snappy, it's fun. And then when we first see Tom Baker as the Doctor in this episode, he has his head down in this very dramatic shot and he slowly raises his head back up and you see under the, the brim of his hat, you know, he's all contemplative and quiet. Mm. And him and Sarah Jane have a really great exchange about how he walks through eternity and how he is this immortal being that is not remotely human and isn't remotely like Sarah Jane. All while she was prancing around in a white dress and a doily over her face, like, oh, lol, you're too serious. (laughs) I love that. I really do. And I really actually wish that that kind of um, relationship um, would make somewhat of an appearance in modern who because like what's so great about that moment is like he's like 
oh, I'm a time lord. And she's just like constantly undercutting him and being like, oh, I know you're a time lord. And oh, you're middle aged and like stuff. And you're like, yes, this is like exactly the kind of relationship I want. And that I think you approach with something like, you know, 10th and, Do- and Donna, you know, and maybe all, uh, the 11th and Amy perhaps. But like, yeah, just like having they like they are so so different and yet click completely as a unit and um one of my favorite favorite moments from this story and from doctor who in general is when i think it's in the fourth episode when they're in the pyramid and the doctor and sarah are walking like they they walk into shot they see the mummy and without like a moment's hesitation they both just (laughs) turn and walk away um and i know it's based on a marx brothers routine but like hearing the story of them like coming up with it and saying they're going to do it and um and the moment itself as it was filmed like it's just perfect it is it is like normalize the companion undercutting the doctor like i think this should be more of a thing <laughs> absolutely um and obviously elizabeth sladen and tom baker just have the most natural chemistry um maybe up until uh tenant and billy piper um it it just it clicks so beautifully and it's so much fun but they also know obviously when to allow for the gravitas to hang in the air a little bit you know you do get a lot of stuff in this episode where sarah jane is quite taken aback by the doctor's inhumanness Mm. Um, and those moments pay off really well because you start the episode with them sort of like uh, just um approaching a, a a big existential dread moment from two very different angles that both are valid and fun and interesting and then it just builds on that throughout the entire story especially as it relates to this being essentially a plot about an immortal being versus a all-powerful god that's a really interesting observation that's a really interesting observation it's something i hadn't considered until this very moment because it is Sorry, true. It is Pyramids of Mars has layers. <laughs> <laughs> it is true that like this, the modern idea that we have of the doctor is like somebody who walks in time and, and is revered across planets was like, it's very new. And in the classic series, it wasn't really much of a, a thing like with the first three doctors, at least like they were just, you know, adventurers and scientists, but like they weren't, gods and they certainly weren't heroes like quote unquote and this is probably one of the first instances in the show where it actually acknowledged their timelessness their age and their scope of perception of the universe so to then offset that with a story about a god god yeah you're right it's totally it's totally thematically correct uh, what you're listening to in real time is CJ realizing that I picked this episode for a reason. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, I kn- I knew why you picked it. I knew why you picked it, but I'm like seeing another layer to why you picked it. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it's good. Pyramids of Mars. Is, I, I think it holds up for a reason, even if it is working on those levels that, just like you just had then, that you don't quite realize it's working on. I think the reason why it resonates so deeply with fans is because it is serving you. You know, it's serving you the fun doctor. It's serving you the deep and existential doctor. It's it's doing massive stories about gods and all-powerful beings, but also mummies that are actually robots mm. and sort of little Egyptian trinkets that turn out to have little technological devices inside of them. Mm. It's it's throwing so many ingredients into the pot and it turns into this wonderful pulpy tight story and i just love it so much you're right and it's also doing it in um in doctor who terms as well because like you have that really good scene 
where Sarah's like, oh, we can we can just go home, can't we? We can just, um, you know, we know Sutek didn't take over in 1911. We know that the future is there. And so the Doctor takes her forward in time and the Earth is decimated and you get that really great shot where you don't see the TARDIS land, but you see her, you see the doors open and she looks out and sees this blasted Earth. So you see it all through Sarah's perspective, which is so great um, and very modern again. Um, but yeah, like that the power of the time Lord to be able to literally see the future. Um, like it's, it was such a sci-fi concept before that, but now you see it in this episode as something more mythic and godlike in scope. Mm. My God. Sorry. I'm just having a complete utter brainwave right now. You're going a fucking come to Zootech moment. <laughs> I am. I'm coming for suit. Oh God. I can't say that. <laughs> Oh, let's let's not do that. Um, but look, uh, yeah, no, that but that moment where um, okay, before we get to that moment, I will say there's that little shot of the of Lawrence Scarman, Marcus's brother, who when he comes into the TARDIS for the first time, again being a very sort of like new who blueprint, he has the oh, it's bigger on the inside moment, mm. and it's seeing all those like sort of playing pieces that new who loves to overuse maybe. Um, present here I just I love it so much and then you do get that really good bit of you know the doctor like the TARDIS moves but you don't really know that it's moved it doesn't have that classic kind of like whirling sound and everything and the doors just slide open and Sarah Jane gets to witness what would happen if Sutek um, is allowed to succeed and she has that really great line where she's just quietly kind of devastated she's like I was born in 1980 and she's looking at 1981 being completely gone and it's so good it is really good. It's a really good performance, as we are to expect from from Elizabeth Slayton. <laughs> oh, she's so charming. She she really nails a lot of what makes this episode um, work because you do have Tom Baker essentially operating on um, like a very non-human level for a lot of this story because he needs to go toe to toe with something that is unrecognizably like just rather not recognizable at all as human in, in Sutek. And so he has to go full blown time Lord, you know, I'm going to war time. Um, and so a lot of Sarah Jane's role in this story is to be the more human face of what's going on here. Because uh, speaking of Marcus, he at some point gets killed by Lawrence. No, sorry. Lawrence at some point gets killed by Marcus. He gets uh, strangled by him off screen. Uh, after they have a, a, a very sad reunion. Um, and then Sarah Jane and the Doctor find the body and uh, the Doctor is just immediately back at work trying to figure out what's going on here. And Sarah Jane's having this like moment because the three of them did build up a slight connection. And Sarah Jane says to the Doctor, you know, how can you just, you know, be so inhuman about this? A man has just died. And the Doctor just completely nonchalantly is like, yes, and, um, you know, Marcus is dead. The, there's a, a caretaker that also dies. He's like, and thousands more will die if, if we don't fix this right now. And you can just see mm. the complete difference in the way that these two characters are interpreting life and death in this moment. And, it, again, it's just it adds another layer to um, what might initially appear as a very sort of, like, aesthetics first story is doing a lot of heavy lifting. It's just doing it in a very, like, subtle and maybe sometimes slightly too short way. Uh, yeah, I'd agree with that. They're more like moments that point to a larger idea than necessarily um, a thorough investigation. But like, I, I honestly prefer that 
in some ways. Um, the other thing I really like about that moment you've just highlighted is that like you can, as a viewer and uh, as a companion as well, you know, in story terms, you can look at the doctor and like comfortably live alongside them thinking they look like me, they look like humans. So that why wouldn't they be human? And the great, thing about that line is like you Sarah it's not like you know how can you be so inhuman it's that she says sometimes you don't seem and then he says human and you realize like Mm. that like she never had to consider that he was an alien before yeah like they don't have to have that moment with him companions have it with like Slovene or other alien creatures or whatnot but like not the doctor and it's a really harsh um brutal thing when you realize that your friend isn't not it's not only like or not on your level but like not even of your planet um yeah, <laughs> yeah. On, on on that note uh isn't there a scene in school reunion which we're going to get up to pretty soon where the doctor and sarah jane are reunited after all those years and there's a from memory there's an exchange about how he couldn't watch her age Yes, uh, yes. So that in school reunion, it's um, it's not actually with Sarah. Sarah's like says to him, um, you know, all the things we did and that you dropped dropped me back on Earth. And he doesn't really answer her. But then later, I'm trying to remember now. Like, but it's much more. Um, he basically says it to Rose. He never says it to Sarah. Um, but I think she knows. Right. So okay. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, um, look, yeah, I'm, I'm very much looking forward to Sarah Jane's return when we get up to school reunion, which isn't too far off, actually. It's not too far off, yeah. But before we do that, um, it is probably worth talking about um, the the real MVP of Pyramids of Mars <laughs> is uh, Gabriel Wolfe as Sutek the Destroyer, Sutek the Great. Um, Sutek is possibly my favourite Doctor Who villain of all time. He is on such a, another level to anything else we've ever seen he's first of all he's a hugely dramatic bitch right <laughs> he's he's confined to his little chair and he's got these green glowing eyes and he's able to manipulate seemingly anything around him using just his, his sort of like magic psychic abilities right you've got that you've got his ties to egyptian mythology uh you've got his really fascinating warped sense of self and what he is in the world uh, there's a, an exchange between him and um, the Doctor at the beginning of episode four, which is maybe the best scene in the entire uh, serial, where um, uh, I, th- I think he's saying to the Doctor, you know, like, uh, turn, work for me, uh, you know, we can do good or whatever. The Doctor's like, no, you do nothing but evil, Sutek. And Sutek gets this amazing line, evil, your evil is my good. I am Sutek the Destroyer. Where I tread, I leave nothing but dust and darkness. I find that good. And I love that line. And Gabriel Wolf's delivery of it is is so haunting and disturbing. And I know that we do sometimes dabble with villains who, you know, think they're the good guys and whatnot. And I don't think it's that clear cut with someone like Sutek. I think he just has such a warped and disturbing view of, of reality under him uh, that he can find that much death and destruction to be a good thing. And I just, I love him. I could talk about Sutek <laughs> forever. I know, and you have. Um, <laughs> I didn't mean that to be so shady. Um, Sutek, it's like, it. yes, I utterly agree. I think Gabriel's voice is so smooth and silky, like chocolate, and it's the perfect kind of, like, um, reversal of how 
Doctor Who voice actors had done villains in the past because like I think the most the worst of them was Stephen Thorne who I don't know if you've seen the three doctors James but it um it 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 has Omega, this villain called Omega, um, and Stephen Thorne does the voice for it, and he does this big, booming, I will decimate you kind of voice. And you're just like, ah, okay. Do your, do, your little, <laughs> do your little kid show voice. But, like, Gabriel Wolf's performance is just so, like, the, yeah, just the complete opposite of that. It's calm and controlled and measured and so, so, so sinister that you never are in, like, question that he is like as powerful as he says he is um and it's just perfect and the design as well is like ugh, gorgeous oh it is absolutely the i mean like sutek himself as the weird kind of like shriveled dog head sutek i find much less intimidating but the mask of sutek this big hulking black thing that consumes almost the entirety of his upper body is so good i mean like the the room that he like for the most part sutek only ever sits in a room in this story and he is still so intimidating and interesting because the just the shadow that he casts sitting there is is such a stunning thing to look at Mm. um and i think even beyond the sort of like the performance and the aesthetics of sutek as a as he is written as a foil to the doctor I, i find quite interesting because um in the doctor obviously now, not at this point in the continuity of the show, there are still other Time Lords. This isn't. This is pre-Time War, pre the Doctor being without his race and whatnot. Um, but with Sutek, you've got another immortal, another being of a race for, of, of great power. And in the Doctor's timeline, he would go on to have to kill, or seemingly have to kill his entire race to end a war. And in Sutek, instead, you've got an immortal who chose to kill his entire race so that he could be the only all-powerful one left standing. And I find that to be a really interesting mirror for a Time Lord that would later go on to do what the Doctor does. And I, it may, it, and look, obviously I always want Sutek to come back. Other, like, he's the only villain in Doctor Who that I'd be happy to have like a recurring Christmas special every, every year about. But <laughs> I do think if you were to have Sutek go up against um, Time War, doctor of some sort that could be a really fascinating sort of battle of different ideologies and and the minds and whatnot hey maybe we'll see him come back in the um time lord victorious you never know hey hey now hey now look i'm just saying if suzak came back in a big finish story i would that's like a real monkey paw situation for me so i don't even want to entertain that in, in big finish in like the audio dramas yeah he he has several times <laughs> Oh, I'm not a real Doctor Who fan. The jig is up. Um, I, 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 in fact, I'm even listening to one, like, at the moment on my walks to work. It's called Kill the Doctor and the Age of Sutek. And it's ah. got the fourth Doctor and Leela in it. And it's great. Uh, does Gabriel Wolf? Gabriel, Gabriel Wolf, I think, is the only actor to have played that role. Because of course he does. Because of course he has. Oh, excellent. Um, well, that's good then. That's fine. I, I can forgive that then. <laughs> yes. No, but yes, um, I think it's, uh, you know, but that's audio. And uh, obviously his voice is very suited to audio, but like uh, to your point, a, a full-blown television revival of him would be just the bee's knees. Truly. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Look, Sutek is great. His, um, 
his mummies are also fascinatingly like interesting to look at even though they are just basically mummies like i like how they haven't gone for the traditional like rotting um rotting um limbs and bits and like grossness of like traditional mummies like they're sturdy big things with these huge protruding chests and those like weird cut out eyes on their faces that look so creepy so so creepy they remind me of yeah, um, like, the, like the hollow indents yeah they remind me of like weirdly and i don't know how or why i've made this connection but like you know that movie the others and you've got the um the doll face and she's got like those big long like cartoonish eyes like that's how i visualize like what those like what those like indents in their faces remind me of and like that's a horror film so you know that's good it's a good thing to like be thinking about when it comes to this story it is it definitely is and i mean like the mummies in this story are like they are equal parts like goofy and silly and very much a product of their time and like you just said like still genuinely quite unsettling in a lot of ways there's a couple of really good shots of them just kind of like spookily patrolling the woods surrounding the mansion and they're Mm. just standing there like slowly spinning on the spot looking around for uh you know whoever they're going to try and kill next and even though watching them walk is super awkward um just their mere presence in in this physical little like place that they filmed in feels so uh textured and real um and it's Again, another point in in Pyramids of Mars' favor is that because it is set on, you know, just in this house and in on those sort of the grounds of the mansion, then you go to Mars a little bit later and that that obviously looks much more sort of like a sci-fi set. Um, Everything that's set on Earth feels so uh, grounded and realistic that there's there's just a, a real inherent horror to what's going on because it isn't overly reliant on uh, CGI or like, you know, special effects that have aged because of its time. Instead, they did use, you know, the physical mummies, uh, Sutex uh suit thing is is a physical prop and so a lot of it does age really really well yeah a lot of it does um and even the the worser elements like the time tunnel or the the pyramid um you know i think you can safely disregard (laughs) but just going back to a point that we brought up previously which i just want to circle back to about the doctor coming up against um for all intents and purposes, a god. Um, there's a really nice, and I know that this is something that you and I both like very much vibe with when it comes to Doctor Who, which is the Doctor, the coming up against the Doctor's like beliefs and what they believe in, and how that is like reflected in the world that they inhabit and the, the universe at large. And like Sutek is like a Sutek is a is a god with godlike powers, but like is still a very physical threat. So he doesn't necessarily like violate the Doctor's belief. But it's interesting that um, uh, Gabriel Wolf comes back in an episode. We are going to be discussing this season, um, the Impossible Planet Satan Pit, where he plays the voice of another god who argues that they are literally the devil. And I just like wondered how you felt about where Sutek fits in with this pantheon of gods that the Doctor is constantly coming up against. Because I know you really vibe with the Eternals as well. Uh, I do. I, I really do. And uh, Sutek is part of the Osirens. Is that correct? The Osirens, which um, actually the um, production notes for this ep- this story um, 
show that they intended the Asylums to not be a race, but rather like a, a, a gallery of different aliens that formed this kind of like galactic federation or something like that, um, which I like. And it also explains why they all look different to one another and are reflected as different like animals in Egyptian mythology. But it's not really mm. pointless. <laughs> no, that's interesting. Yeah, so I I don't really know because I guess the idea of the Doctor going up against... Uh, I, I do think maybe this would be more interesting if they occasionally pitted the Doctor against a creator instead of a destroyer, um, which is why It Takes You Away is so interesting because instead of being you know the, the ultimate quote-unquote villain of the episode isn't someone who associates themselves as you know the the devil or i leave dust everywhere i go or whatever it's a god who just wants to create and be loved and i think that creates more of a interesting um uh, sort of situation to challenge the doctor's core beliefs as opposed to just well you want to kill things and so it's my role to kind of put you down um and obviously Sutek is, you know, very much a product of the 1970s in that way, um, which again is why I would like to see him in a, the new iteration of the show that does occasionally give its um, godlike beings maybe a little bit more depth and nuance. Although, um, to be fair, I, I wouldn't necessarily say that the new iteration um, gives these gods maybe as much depth as I would like either, because then you've got something like Can You Hear Me, which does incorporate the Eternals but again, just reduces them down to, well, we just want to be evil. Um, and I would like for there to be maybe more of a philosophical debate between um, the Doctor and other immortal beings, which, fingers crossed, if they're going to do anything with the Timeless Child, let's explore who, like, what race the Doctor was initially a part of and maybe have some dramatic tension come out of that. I think that could be quite interesting. Uh, it would be so very interesting. <laughs> um, it's something I've always always wanted the show to do as um is to really investigate like the like this universe that the doctor belongs in and like what like just go into some more spiritual elements like of this program would be my dream if i was running the show basically is what i'm saying (laughs) (laughs) yeah look i mean i i don't want to fall back on if we were running the show but honestly if we were running the show uh the doctor would be having like 40 minute long conversations with gods every episode so um that's basically what we're saying here (laughs) yeah so um bbc doctor who um i hope you're listening because we're coming for you yeah hit hit us up (laughs) um but look i look we've been talking for way too long about pyramids of mars compared to uh it's you know little little baby sister episode uh doctor who and the solarians um (laughs) so i'm not sure if there's anything else that we really want to touch on um um, no, that that's me really for pyramids. But you know, one thing we do need to do before we wrap up is rate both of these stories. Um, and we have to be completely impartial. We can't let our prejudices uh, impact on how we're going to um, Im- rate either of these. But obviously, Silurians is better. Um. Well, there you have it. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> No, um, I'm I'm being serious though. Let's 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 do it. And I think if I were to be completely impartial, um, I would rate Silurians as probs like a B plus, and then pyramids an A. This is surprising information. This is 
like I don't think that it's worth comparing the two because they are just drastically different on all fronts. But this um, is true. Yeah, like I don't think I can adequately say that Pyramids is worse than Doctor Who and the Silurians. Um, even though like I feel like in my gut that they are, like on paper, like it yeah. You know what I mean? Okay. Okay. <laughs> uh, uh, I, I do. I do. I also think it's important that like, you know, subjectivity is always going to play a part in any review that you give something. And so look, if, if you want to let that freak flag fly on this one, you go for it. Cheers, mate. Appreciate it. What about you? What are you giving it? Um, so Doctor Who and the Solarians, I am going to land on a solid B plus. Um, I, I do, I mean, look, I don't enjoy watching it as much as I would like to, but I really, really love thinking about it. And that, that does rate it a little bit higher than maybe I I normally would give something that I found to be that, um, unengaging in the moment. (laughs) And Pyramids of Mars is, is an easy A. Um, huh? Like the Emma Stone film. (laughs) Did we, have we both aligned on our ratings this week? I think this, yeah, I, I think we are pretty much nicely aligned this week. Um, and look, hopefully you folks have enjoyed this discussion. This is um, a bit a bit fast and loose. This is very new for us. We haven't really discussed Classic Who before. And so bringing our, you know, very socially forward queer minds to um, stories that were written well before our time and well before our media standards has been certainly interesting but i we yeah we hope that you've had fun with us we hope that maybe you can if you haven't seen these before you encouraged to go and check out two classic stories yeah um i really enjoyed this discussion this week um and i I think it's really cool for us to get a chance to just discuss some classic who episodes that we really like um unrestricted by say doing them chronologically as we have committed ourselves to new who yeah so i'm i'm keen to see what further discussions in this era of the show uh, you know, I, I, I completely agree. And next week we will be back to our more structured sort of uh, maybe thoughtful analysis next time. We're actually going to have some show notes instead of just doing this a bit off the cuff like we have now. Uh, but next week we are back with The Christmas Invasion, which Ooh. is our first David Tennant story. Ooh, you hate Christmas. How are you going to get through this? I do. I I hate Christmas, but spoiler alert, we've both watched The Christmas Invasion and we are super keen to talk about it. We really are. I think, let's not give too much away. Let's not give too much away. No, but um, there is a lot to discuss and yeah, <laughs> that's all. It's, I'm so tired. Let's wrap that's this up. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so we'll, we'll leave it there. Uh, something to look forward to for, for next week. But as always, if you have any thoughts, feelings, or show notes, or, or anything at all, you can reach out to us at twoheartspodcast at gmail.com. Or you can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at twoheartspod, and that's two, the number two. And as always, I have been James. If you do want to reach out to me on Twitter, I am at OMGMoreJames. I'm always happy to shoot the shit and have a chat and... You know, I Doctor Who ship post now, so that's fun. <laughs> you do, and they've been great on our socials, so you should get there immediately and like them. Um, and if you like, I am on Twitter and Instagram at McLean underscore. Uh, until next week, folks, you take it easy. Have a good one. See ya. See ya.